pure reflection on the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, basically the kilesas that we've been already talking about quite a, quite a lot and which we'll continue talking about relentlessly until the end of the retreat. And at next retreat, we start again. Before going into this, I would like, however, to express my happiness at being here in this time. Uh, despite the fact that I've been away from home for a long time now, um, it feels very right, very good to be here working together at the most important thing. So it's a very, pla it's a very good place to be. I was reading Buddha Dasa, this uh, living Buddhist master. He says, every religion worthy of the name aims essentially at teaching freedom from self-centeredness. Every religion includes the important teaching of freedom from self and from concern with self, in which, however, its followers take no interest. They are like us Buddhists who take no interest in the doctrine of non-self, the characteristic doctrine of Buddhism. Therefore, it can be said that mankind is taking no interest in the thing that is most important to mankind. And therefore, being with a group of people uh, which seems to share a growing suspicion that this fundamental attitude of mankind is wrong. It's very good. And that's why I said this is a very good place to be. And uh, I also suggest, if you agree, I suggest that you remember this at your next hindrance. I also Yes, would like to introduce the topic of the kilesas of the causes of suffering with a couple of short quotes by the same master, Buddha Dasa. Let this be well understood. Neither the world nor any of the things that comprise the world is or ever has been in its elf a source of suffering. But the moment one goes grasping and clinging, there is suffering. If one does not grasp, however, and cling, there is no suffering. And again he says, the Buddha taught that greed, anger, and misunderstanding, namely the three root kilesas, are the causes that give rise to suffering. If we ourselves are not yet acquainted 
with greed, anger, and misunderstanding. And meditation is the way to get acquainted. Then, there is no way we can believe this. But when we know ourselves, when we know ourselves that greed, what greed is like, what anger is like, and what confusion is like, and that and when we ourselves see that when they arise in the mind, they produce suffering, and this suffering is like a burning fire, then we believe on our experience, on the base of our experience. So, the first and foremost task of our practice is getting much more familiar with the kilesas, with the cause of suffering. Katagiri Roshi, a Zen master, says, the more we sit, and this is, again, meditation as the way out through the kilesa, beyond the kilesa. The more we sit, the more we realize the strength of human ignorance. This is pretty hard, because the more we taste and chew real peace, the more we realize human ignorance. But the more we realize human ignorance, the more we cannot stop teaching real peace, living real peace. Now, this is very fundamental, that through the sitting, through the practice, we uh, taste some real peace. And this real peace is the major help to understanding first and then overcoming the suffering and its causes. Maybe a few words uh, are needed on a practical level about this root cause, which is ignorance or confusion, avidya, avidya. Basically, ignorance is ignoring all the suffering which is created by attachment and by aversion. For instance, if there is a war, the immediate causes for war, the proximate causes for war, are greed for power, territory, whatever, and hostility for another nation or tribe. But the root cause is ignorance of the enormous cost of suffering which the war uh, generates. If there was, again, as we were say, saying the other night, sensitivity to the suffering which is generated, then we would not go on justifying attachment and hostility. The same with any violence, any uh, little or very little war, 
which goes inside ourselves or in our uh, relationship. Root cause, ignorance. Uh, proximate causes, attachment and aversion. Talking about attachment is same as talking about aversion. They are two sides of the same coin. Where there is attachment, there is aversion and vice versa. Whenever we talk about one of these two, we are talking about the other one as well. I think it's helpful to realize that ignorance, avidya, can be passive and can be very active. What do we mean by passive ignorance, passive avidya? Unawareness. You know, just, just the reverse of what we are trying to practice here. When we, you know, are totally uh, drifting away, when we are not aware, when we are not mindful, we are planting seeds of ignorance. Unawareness is fertile. Each moment of unawareness is planting a seed for further unawareness. Luckily, it's also the other way around. Every moment of awareness means planting a seed for further awareness. You know, this is the Dharma. This is the law of cause and effect. The Dharma, which is beautiful at the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. The Dharma, which is like a peaceful lake. The Dharma, which is like a mountain peak. But as we said, ignorance is also very active, and this activity is vastly unconscious and goes on all the time. When we justify our attachment, our aversion, that's active ignorance. When we find reasons for attachment and its opposite. Active ignorance is at work. If, you know, if ignorance wasn't there, what would be left? Wanting what is good and not wanting what is bad. It is not that wanting and not wanting would not be there anymore, but they would not be filled with ignorance. And therefore, this is same as saying wisdom, panya. Now, when we get to wanting only what is good, what is kusala, what is helpful, and not wanting what is not helpful, we are pretty wise. And we have uh, substituted ignorance with, uh, with wisdom. We want only that which is kusala, that which helps, that which brings us to the other shore. In other spiritu spiritual tradition, the uh, discriminative wisdom is sometimes defined as being interested only in that which 
brings you to God and losing all interest for what has not this effect. Now this sounds similar. So the first the more tangible kilesas are the expressions of attachment and aversion. Ignorance is sometimes visible, sometimes is not. The more we practice and the more familiar we become with avijja. Attachment has often to do with what is familiar. We see, we see this very easily in a retreat. Sometimes at the beginning of a retreat we feel some discomfort or aversion towards certain people and it's not very clear why except for the fact that they are very different, they look very different from the people we are familiar with. So because of our attachment to what is familiar, we feel some aversion to what doesn't look familiar. But interestingly enough, it may happen that then days or weeks go by and one day we see that that Zafu where that person used to sit is empty. Oh, he or she has gone. Too bad. We don't like this. What happened is that in the process we got used to that person. That person somehow, um, whatever, his uh, pants, t-shirt, socks, <laughs> became familiar to us. And now um, we regret a little bit that that familiar form is not there anymore. No, this is new. That zafu being empty, this is new. It's not like every day, you know, that familiar back in front of me. So very much to do with, with, um, with feeling more at ease with what is familiar. It's not very much rational, but it is like that. Attachment, attachment aversion, maybe just one word, should be just one word, implies lack of freedom, implies compulsion, implies no choice or very little choice. And this is why it's... Uh, considered to be uh, a big hindrance. Just, just uh, let us think of um, something like this. Attachment to an opinion. Suppose we are attached to an opinion of ours. That we cherish this opinion very much. And that we have a meeting with someone 
and we want to talk about this opinion that we have. What happens? First of all, we are tense because since we are very much attached to this opinion, we want this opinion to win. So we are tense. First, suffering. Um, we can't wait for the other person to stop talking because we want to jump in and say our opinion. So we are closed to that person. We don't meet that person. We miss an opportunity. It's just something there uh, and we can't wait for this, that person to stop. And suppose that person doesn't agree with our opinion or has a very, let's say, lukewarm reaction. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Frustration. So we went from tension, impatience, contraction, you know, being closed to frustration and possibly with some, uh, you know, obsessive aversion afterwards. <laughs> two, two forms maybe, aversion for the other person who did not appreciate, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the nectar of our <laughs> mind. <laughs> and aversion for ourselves because once again, we weren't good enough to express ourselves in a more, in a more effective way. So, you know, from one attachment, we piled up, uh, you know, a number of aversions, suffering. Uh, also, no new knowledge coming from this, coming together. No... Um, affection of any kind, just tension, tightening, coldness. Now, the very same situation can have a totally different outcome if we are not attached to our opinion. We'll be listening to the other person, so we'll meet with the other person. We'll be interested in the other person's feedback to our opinion, because we are not attached to our opinion. So we might even be thankful to the other person for giving us feedback and helping us explore our opinion. A totally different outcome. Instead of suffering, there is some contentment, some satisfaction, some joy. So going back to that quote from Buddha Daza, it's not the world that it's the, the, the cause for suffering. The situation is exactly the same. Having one opinion and meeting with another person and talking about that opinion. But in the first case, we generated only suffering. And in the second case, we generated satisfaction and ease and exploration and knowledge and maybe some warmth. Same situation. So again, the search has to be inside. 
Of course, there are two different ways of talking about the kilesis. Let's say the traditional one and the uh, more contemporary one. Personally, I think that both ways are true and both ways are needed as mutual correctives in, 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 if we need it in our practice. The traditional way is very kind of uh, you know, spiritual combat. The kilesas are the enemies and uh, the, uh, the practice is the sword and uh, you know, we have to kill the kilesas and all, all sort of military metaphors. Um, I think there is one very clear advantage in the traditional way and which is to make us alert to the radical toxic character of the kilesas. Just by dramatizing it all like this, it helps us being aware of what is at stake. On the other hand, we can, if we overuse that language, uh, those concepts with ourselves, uh, we can somehow fall into a very dualistic uh, way of looking at things we can basically, as a response, generate a very strong kilesa, which is feeling desperate because we are so much filled of kilesa that we feel, you know, uh, we are totally defiled and totally impure, and so much so that we can feel paralyzed. This can happen. So the more contemporary way and can be an excellent corrective. The more contemporary way is imbued with psychological terms. So we won't talk about uh, impurity or defilements or uh, this, uh, this way, but we would rather talk in, in an extra cautious way, like problems, <laughs> conflicts, <laughs> you know, shadow, uh, integration of, you know, uh, frustration. Uh, uh. So this is, however, um, very helpful in counterbalancing the other attitude, and, and we need it, and it's true. Both attitudes are true. But what is the danger of this one? That we might lose uh, perspective on the radical toxic character of the uh, Achillesis, just by sort of minimizing their impact instead of dramatizing that, going to the other extreme, uh, the danger is like we risk falling asleep at the edge of the precipice, so to speak. You know, we underestimate what is at stake. We underestimate the power, the incredible power of uh, the kilesas. But I think if we use both, uh, my impression is we are on the right track often or sometimes um, when people start working with the kilesas, start practicing, um, it might not be so clear uh, where the kilesas are. In other words, we learn that un unless the mind is really peaceful, is really calm, some kilesa uh, is at work. But suppose we are going through a state of mild sadness or sadness, okay? 
And we might ask, what is wrong with this? The mind, obviously, is not very peaceful. There is this contraction, this tension, uh, due to the uh, sadness. But we don't see uh, what is wrong with this state of mind. Well, if we've been, if we've been practicing a bit, uh, we learn very soon that what we have to look at and to look for are the thoughts which uh, go with the feeling, the judgments, the conclusions which, so to speak, accompany this state of mind. Uh, I don't mean always, but often. And that is the, uh, the ground to work with the kilesas. Uh, there can be feelings of, uh, or thoughts of self-pity, of resentment, of uh, judgments along this line. But that's where the kilesas are maybe half uh, hidden. And that's where the work has to be brought. Sometimes these thoughts are the very cause for the state of sadness. And sometimes it's not true. Sadness came from some faraway place and activated those thoughts. But in any case, those thoughts and feelings are toxic. And so the work on those thoughts and feelings is very important. Then someone might ask, but there might be sadness for objective reasons not like this one, say, a loss of an important person in our life or a, a serious illness that makes us sad. It's true. It's true. In this tradition, it is said that even grief is a kilesa which has to be uh, uh, got rid of. But if we think of something more accessible, you know, that this very uh, high achievement, uh, we can think of something uh, partly different, which is a state of sadness for objective reasons, which is clean. A sadness where there are mainly thoughts of loving kindness, of compassion, and where fear is not fed in any way. Because we can be sad out of objective reasons, and as a reaction, our mind can be very filled with attachment and aversion. For instance, we can be blaming very much ourselves or other people because of that loss or because of our sickness, illness. This is totally different from a sadness which is there because we've lost something very important and we hurt, we ache, just that we had lost uh, a part of ourselves. But at the same time, the mind is not giving out negative uh, waves. Like there is sadness, there is pain, but mostly there is loving kindness. And maybe if we are in uh, a situation of objective pain, uh, 
there is fear because maybe this is a life-threatening uh, illness, but there is no, there is not feeding of the fear. So different attitude, very different quality of sadness. Uh, maybe ultimately even the sadness is uh, a little, is a kilesa, but there is no difference with that kind of sadness which is full of blaming, of resentment, and of, um, you know, incessant uh, feeding of fear. Very different kind of sadness. And we, we can work on it. I suppose we work better if we, first of all, get rid of the idea of getting rid of sadness. You know, we go like that. First of all, I would like to get rid of sadness. Then I go into thoughts and feelings which are toxic within the sadness. No, I think the right way is accepting the sadness. And through this acceptance, through this opening, we can work much better at what is more specifically toxic within the sadness. Again, sometimes one thing, um, there is a state of mind which is like a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of tension. But if we investigate our thoughts, we find only like pragmatic thoughts. I have to do the laundry, uh, I have to feed the cat. So we don't find food for work with the kilesa, apparently. See, but this is a typical situation that it's just a little interaction often is enough to trigger some uh, kilesa stuff. If you are very tense, if you are in this state, instead of anxiety, maybe a small criticism can trigger something absolutely out of proportion. That very same criticism the previous day you know, would not have touched us at all. But now that we are in this state of tension, that criticism is like an explosion and we make the other person into a monster. And the same is true for the opposite uh, possibility, like someone gives us a smile and we do a big deal of that smile. You know, what is called in, in this tradition, papancha, the mental proliferation, takes off exactly in the same way. Like, I don't know, someone who smiles like that for sure knows what it's all about. You know, that smile. Uh, that smile. And it's only a smile. But we, we built up, mm, because of this uh, frail state we are in, all this uh, big construction. Now this is to be examined uh, in terms of uh, the toxic character of the kilesas, because all this is just weighting us down, the monster or the hero. It's, it's not, we are not dealing with reality. We are not dealing with things yatabutam, the way they are. We are making things, and therefore we suffer. 
attachment aversion is larger and deeper than what we think at the beginning of our practice. I'm sure that many of you have done a lot of practice and, and uh, it's been one bitter surprise after the other. <laughs> a good word is addiction, mental addiction. And I don't mean addiction to alcohol or drugs or just mental addiction. I think someone said that being human is being addicted and being human at the same time is having an enormous need to go beyond addictions. It's, both things are true at the same time. And we are working along these two lines, seeing more clearly our mental addictions and letting the need to go beyond addictions, to surface more and more and to take over our lives. That's what we are doing here. See, there are two terms. One is desire and one is attachment or addiction. Desire itself is energy and we need desire to live. We need desire to practice. You know, in order to go in a three-month retreat, we need a lot of desire which has to be much more powerful of other desires, otherwise we would never leave. So desire is very important, both to survive and to uh, walk along the path. The problem is attachment. Addiction is not like a free energy like desire. And the mind has this tendency to, to get addicted. What we see more and more in this practice is this tremendous addiction to thinking and fantasizing. There's nothing to do. The addiction to thinking and fantasizing has nothing to do with, say, the art of thinking, the art of reflecting. That's a work. This, is, this one is not a work is something we get constantly sucked in again and again and again. We all know this very well. It's like wanting to have the TV on all the time, <laughs> no matter what the programs are. You know, we want to be entertained by our mind constantly. We want to keep company with our thoughts. Holy thoughts, criminal thoughts, doesn't matter, provided someone is there with us. <laughs> you know, it's exactly like wanting the, the, you know, the television, you know, to talk, talk, so someone is there. Doesn't, you know, what he or she is talking about doesn't count. You know, we want the noise, the familiar noise to be there. Ah. Uh, we want to be stimulated. And this is why at the beginning of a retreat there are fairly obvious withdrawal symptoms because <laughs> we have less stimuli for our uh, thinking and imagining and fantasizing. This is, this is you know, a very strong, a very strong addiction. 
Now imagine that someone who's not familiar with this practice just entered this second and heard what I just said. Like very easily this person uh, might say, well, what's wrong with that? Now we want to keep company with our thoughts. Uh, we are, um, uh, you know, we don't like being alone, feeling alone, and so if there is no one around to chat, we want to chat with our thoughts. So what's wrong? Actually, it seemed to be smart, you know, a survival device, excellent. But what the practice is telling us over and over is that actually a mind which is more silent is much more helpful in terms of keeping company, in terms of giving us warmth. And a mind which is learning silence can be much more in company with other people because it's, more, it, it, it's much more receptive to other people. So it goes the other way around, that the more silence we get into our minds, the more warmth and ease and therefore capacity for understanding we realize, we get we acquire. But we have a very strong conditioning in that uh, assumption, in that uh, addiction. How many times during a retreat we go to see the same movie in the mind? It is totally meaningless and we keep going, sit down and look from the beginning to the end. <laughs> It's not, it's not, uh, it's not, it doesn't carry any uh, special message. It's just that set of memories. How was it? Da -da 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 -da. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't you call this an addiction? It's a very strong addiction. And we don't get out of this addiction what we think we should get, what, what we think we would get, like company, warmth. It's not so. It's not so. Now, through the practice, the first thing, as you know, is calmness, samatha, and then there is vipassana. Through calmness, we get more satisfaction, and therefore, we become less compulsive, less attached to our addictions. It's a common experience that the more we practice, the less interested we are in some habit, some you know, mental habits and uh, mental addictions, because we have a source of fulfillment and satisfaction inside. So we, 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 we uh, derive warmth and, 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 um, and fulfillment from that source and therefore some tension starts relaxing. Maybe that our mental addiction are so strong that we need some help before developing some calmness in meditation. I remember 
when I first started teaching meditation, uh, how much struck I was from a very honest statement from a student who told me I can't wait for my sitting to end so that I can go back into fantasizing. That was very honest. And also showed the power and the strength of our mental addictions. Or I remember another student, and this was not at the beginning of uh, her practice, and she said, the breath, during one sitting, sometimes I catch one breath. Sometimes not even one breath. Again, the incredible power of our mental habits, of our mental addictions. But if we get to some calmness, then we have this source, we have this strength. But it's not the end of it, because given the addictive nature of our mind, we can easily get addicted to this new thing that we've found very much. It happens quite a lot. And so we, we, we become maybe harder than we were before because we found this jewel and we become uh, very jealous. We would do almost, almost anything to uh, keep that jewel. So everything um, gets hardened in a self-centered way around that. And it is here that the wisdom part, the Vipassana part, comes in just to show us that we are doing exactly as we were doing before with this new object. Instead of using it in a wise way, we are recycling it in a toxic way. But when we see this, then we can use the calmness, the concentration, the peace, the stillness, in order to nourish the seeing, which has no preferences, the looking, the investigating, which has no preferences whatsoever, and which therefore goes into the direction of non-attachment or equanimity or freedom. Shall we sit for a few seconds? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.org slash donate.